Bruce Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so hello, Mary, and welcome back to Nailers Natter. Well, I'm delighted to be be joining you again, Phil. Um, I really enjoyed doing the last one, so thank you for inviting me again. No problem. And it was really well received, the last one. And not that we're all about statistics or anything like that, but it's still up there in the top five of listened to podcasts. So an extremely popular guest returning. So thank you for your time this evening. <laughs> thank you. Right. I like to timestamp these, Mary, because uh, we're living in, uh, it's an overused word, it's unprecedented, but it certainly are. So this is the evening where, when this is released in a couple of weeks, this will be a distant memory. But this is the evening of the Prime Minister's latest uh, announcement on the latest restrictions so if anything has changed by the time this comes out then uh, we apologize in advance <laughs> it's a bit like have i got news for you in the news quiz isn't it when actually they're recording on a thursday night and the news has changed the next day <laughs> absolutely yes and i've got a look of ian hislop these days so uh, that's very, <laughs> very apt Right, so let's get into the new book. So the new book, uh, obviously we're on audio podcast, but the new book is in front of me. So the new book is Back on Track. So tell listeners uh, the story that you tell, started the book about why this book has been a long time brewing. So um, I, there's kind of two strands to this, is that um, even as a child, I had a real sense that time is precious and that um, it's a great gift even to be alive. And um, I've always felt, well, shouldn't really waste it so if I do waste it it is deliberate and that's not about being busy the whole time it's actually just being intentional about how I use my time so there's plenty of downtime but um, I just don't like that kind of drifting it, it doesn't make me feel great so that's just me personally and I've, I've had that sense since I was a child um, but it's also been brewing a while in terms of its current form in that um, uh, when I finished one book I I get an itch to start writing another. In fact, they quite often overlap. And um, so I've been gathering notes and thoughts for a while on some of the things that I saw getting in the way of doing the most important work in schools, which I think we're now collectively agreed as work on the curriculum. I always caveat that by saying, you know, the, the absolute non-negotiable for the education sector is safeguarding and linked to that are the arrangements around lockdown and um, and that's taking up a lot of headspace for the sector and is likely to do so for the foreseeable. Um, so I put that to one side because I don't think we can mess around with that. But um, I think the sector has now realised that one of the most important things it needs to concentrate in on is the quality of the curriculum. So what I'd been concerned about since my last book came out in 2018 was, you know, some of the stuff that was getting in the way of actually people being able to crack on with the curriculum. So that's how it came about. I have to say that the, the working title was Cutting the Crap. And um, I sent that over to John Catt, Alex Sharrett, who was in touch just saying, have you got anything brewing, Mary? And I said, well, as it happens. And um, he said... He sent me back a contract that evening within a couple of hours with back, uh, cutting the crap in it. So I had to change it when I eventually decided on back on track. I just thought it was a bit a bit over the top, really. But that is the that's the sentiment underlying it. Just cut the nonsense. 
Well, completely. Couldn't agree more with that. And I think we, we might go and, and refer to it as that as we, as we go through with the working title. Um, it's interesting that you raised about the current situation in schools and, um, you know, just to share a personal anecdote from this evening. So um, as I was still in work at about five to six, I was thinking I've got a podcast to record tonight. Now, obviously, I knew that it was you, Mary, so I was very happy to go and record that. But actually, this is a really important conversation to be having today. And I think that you know, with the busyness, particularly the busyness at the moment um, around making sure that, you know, recovery plans are enacted and people are in the correct bubbles, etc. We, we can be really, really busy and not really, you know, focus on things that are important. So a quote that you've got from the, one of the opening chapters is that busyness can be comfortable and we go through the motions. We don't have to think too hard. So how do we, in particularly now, decrease our activity to create space for increased deliberate thinking? Well, I, I, I do think that the work, a lot of it very busy at the moment around the lockdown arrangements is totally justifiable. Um, I mean, that is what is important because that's about children's safety and it's about the community's safety. So I wouldn't I absolutely wouldn't quibble with any of that. And I think that is also deliberate busyness. Um, it's deliberate because it is putting in place the structures, the systems, um, to keep children safe and the adults working in the setting safe and then also responding to the myriad of requests and expectations that are coming through, uh, not least from the Department for Education, Public Health England and parents. And managing all that is likely to be taking up leaders in particular, but also teachers headspace a lot. Um, but if we're thinking in relatively normal times, I do think that as a sector, when we're not facing this kind of crisis, we are incredibly busy. Schools are very busy places. Um, but some of that, I believe, can be trimmed back, can be cut back. And so it's one of the things I explore in the book is, you know, why are we doing things routinely? Because we've just always done them and it's making us feel busy. It's making us feel that we've done something. Yeah, but how has it added or made a difference to what our core purpose is meant to be, which is um, giving children lots of interesting knowledge. <laughs> well, definitely, definitely. And yeah, I would echo that in terms of, you know, the, the safety and security of all concerned at the moment. But hopefully, um, you know, with, with, you know, children tending to be in classrooms most of the time and lesson lengths tending to be extended, um, because obviously they need to be kept in the, in the same bubble. There is now, hopefully, and we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks, a little bit more headspace to to kind of come away from that busyness of running around and making sure everything's as it should be and focus back on. Because, you know, the other side of that is that, that children have missed an awful lot of education. And, you know, I was thinking the other day when, you, you know, you've got the leading scientists being put out in front of the country, how are we going to ensure that the quality of education is continued to be able to produce the next Chris Whitty or Patrick Valance, for example? Well, yes, and it is a worry. However, um, I, I don't think we can lose sleep or get anxious about what has happened in the past. We can't regain that time. There's nothing we can do about it. And so um, one of the things I'm a firm believer in is that you know, we focus on the things which are in our control and where we can make a difference. And we have to let the rest be because the rest of the country, the rest of the world is in the same situation. And um, so 
also to remember that there have been dark times before, not least the pandemic, the influenza pandemic um, from exactly a, a century ago, um, not least um, the interruption caused by um, children being evacuated during the Second World War, not least the disruption to education in the um, uh, in Haiti uh, a few years ago, not least the disruption in the earthquakes in New Zealand. Now, the fact is that all those communities, damaged as they were, by and large, they came through. Now, Witty and um, the other one, Valance, I think they're a bit younger than me. <laughs> but anyway, when I when I was, uh, this is a slight sidetrack, but there is still something, But um, and all your listeners will be far too young to remember, but in the 70s, the early 70s, I think it was 73, it was a three-day week. And I remember... I d it was a great excuse not to do any homework, actually, because you were meant to do it by candlelight. Well, I'd much rather play with the candle than that. But I suppose what I'm taking from all of this is that communities do survive. And it's very interesting if we consider John Hattie's analysis of what happened in Haiti and Auckland was that um, the work that he and colleagues have done is the following year when children were back in school and took, took their exams, the public examinations, results went up. And what he puts it down to, we might, you know, disagree, but um, his view is, is that it was because teachers absolutely focused on gaps in children's learning, high quality questioning, responsive teaching, you know, a formative assessment at its very heart, and no mucking about with stuff that wasn't adding value. So I think there's some quite interesting uh, stuff sitting behind that. We can have this tremendous sense of loss, but actually, I don't think that that always means that it's the end um, of the world. And, um, you know, Nassim Taleb has got some interesting stuff on this in terms of anti-fragility, which is an interesting way of looking at resilience, that um, there are plenty of stresses that can go on in our systems, like our bodies and, you know, systems in schools that put things under stress, but actually a lot of them don't break down. They actually come out uh, more responsive uh, and more robust over time. But that's quite a hard message to take because as you're living through it, a lot of it is dead boring and dead exhausting. No, but it's a good, it's a very good perspective, Mary, and it's certainly making me think uh, in terms of you know what the next few weeks and months are going to hold. Right, moving back to the book. Um, so we're going to move in to talk about the Pareto Principle. And that's something that uh, Simon Cox and I use quite a lot with the Blackpool Research School. And that cropped up quite a lot on courses that we delivered. Um, so could you tell listeners about how uh, Pareto's work and Marie Kondo's work um, provide insights into how we go about our work in education? Yes, so Pareto was, um, he was an Italian professor working in uh, the University of um, Lausanne, I think, in Switzerland in the late 1890s. And his research at that point was focused on um, the ownership of land in England at the time. And he found that 80% of the land at that time was owned by 20% of the population. And he had some insights into whether that might apply to other sectors as well. But it was taken up 
um, in a much more deliberate way by later leadership and management thinkers um, who did extensive research around this. And it, there does appear to be a pattern across all sorts of sectors, from business to public organisations to NGOs, that um, uh, a relatively small proportion of the effort or the input results in a disproportionate amount of um, output. Now, I don't think we need to hold 80-20 as an absolute um, as we go about this. I think that if it could be 70-30. I think the principle is, is that it's a relatively small number of things that make the greatest difference. That appears to be the case across lots of sectors. And I think it's very interesting that you and Simon are using this in your work. Um, and so when we, when we um, take that on board, we then think, well, what might that 20 30% B that is going to have the greatest impact. And I'm arguing, and there's lots of evidence, that it is the quality of the curriculum. So I've also drawn on, as you say, Marie Kondo's um, insights as well. That's slightly tongue-in-cheek, but not completely, because um, Kondo, the decluttering expert, she asks a really important question when we're looking at the amount of stuff we have in our lives. You know, as, as we're looking to get shot of some of it, we ask, does this spark joy? Does this bring me joy? And I, I think that's quite a good lens through which to look at some of, particularly the resources that we offer our children, um, some of the material that land on children's desks. Does this spark joy for me and for my kids? And I don't mean that in a soppy way. I mean it in a really meaningful way. Is this something that's going to really take my pupils to a deep place? or does it need to be chucked out and sent to the charity shop? And th there are two other people I've drawn on as well, and, and that's McCown's Essentialism. Um, so Greg McCown has done a great book on essentialism. Also, essentialism also has a, a very good podcast. Um, and this is all about um, priority and its own priority is a one thing. It is prior, it is above everything else. So this notion of masses of priorities is actually a contradiction in terms. So a lot of his work is about actually what is um, the main thing we're meant to be doing in any context. So it could be a big thing like in our life, why are we, why are we here, what are we meant to be doing, what was the most important thing I can be doing in my life, to um, applying it to work as well. What is the core function of what we're meant to be doing? And anything that doesn't add to that core function um, should be uh, very carefully looked at and actually quite often unceremoniously dropped and then check if, if there are any repercussions. And so it's a very interesting lens to which to look at stuff. And then finally, William Morris's dictum that we shouldn't have anything on our homes that we don't know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. And I think that, again, applies to some of the stuff that we offer our children. Is this useful? Is this going to take their learning deeper? And is it beautiful, not in the sense that it is covered in sparkly butterflies, but is it um, absolutely fit for purpose and beautifully thought through and carefully designed in the Oliver Cavalieri sense? Um, and this isn't about doing more. It's actually about doing less and just making sure that we focus on quality. Definitely. And a, a good shout out to Oli Caviglioli there. Of course, uh, the designer of our logo, as we always mentioned. So, yeah. He's a big fan of his work. Okay, um, we'll just talk about another quote. So, what I'll, and one of the many things I like about the book is that you've got some interesting quotes to start each of the the chapters. And there's a quote that starts the next chapter, which is from Brian Tracy. Now, that's not a name that I'd come across for a long time. 
I I'd read previously a lot of Brian Tracy at one time in life, particularly uh, I think it's Eat That Frog, is it, or Eat the Frog? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the quote at the start of the chapter states that the glue that holds all relationships together is trust and trust based on integrity. So how do we go about getting the conditions right? Right. Well, um, I've done a lot of thinking and a lot of work around this. And so one of the um, threads that I've uh, developed across the year is this notion of high challenge and low threat that as a species, we like doing things that are difficult. We like doing things that um, have got intrigue around them. And, you know, this is backed up by Willingham's work that human beings are curious, um, but thinking is hard. So this idea that um, the relationships we have need to be based on high challenge, but low threat. And so we need to move to a place where we can have robust professional conversations that are underpinned by radical candor, Kim, Kim Scott's work. So we care about human beings first, professionals second. Um, and one of the most important things I think to, to do that is to know a bit about our colleagues, particularly those um, whom we line manage and also to disclose a bit about ourselves because um, I really worry about the way that term trust is thrown about a lot and I just think it's very easy to say it you've got to live it and um, two quick examples of you know this notion of trust and relationships um, one was I was doing a piece of work um, a couple of years or so ago very big sixth form college on the south coast new principal had gone in and he just told me quietly he said I am um, I've got an appointment with every single member of staff in this college um, I just want 15, 20 minutes with each of them just to talk through with them what's important to them, what, they're, um, what, what, they, what they hope to get from their work, what they feel they're contributing and anything else they want to disclose. And um, I said, that's a big investment of time. And he said, yeah, but I believe it's worth it. So when I talked to some of his colleagues out of his earshot, um, I said, you know, so what's like this like? And they said, well, we've never had anything like this before. And um, we were suspicious to begin with because we thought he was just going to be nosy, but it's not. He, he genuinely just wants to know what our views are on working in this institution. So he was a big investment um, in time in doing that. And then I was chatting, chatting to Sam Strickland um, a couple of weeks or so ago. And when he first joined the Dustin School, the same process of just talking to people, not trying to change everything all at once, investing this time is what creates uh, the trust. And then you get to the, to the way of thinking that we're human beings first and we're professionals second. When you've got that in place, you can really have some tough conversations because people know they're psychologically safe. Yeah, to follow up on that, Mary, how important is it then to underpin that principle of humans first and professionals second across any context? Well, I just think it's, I just think it's fundamental. And, I, th I think one of the I think one of the greatest needs in human being, each of us, is to be recognized for the unique human being that we are and for someone to take a genuine, open, honest interest in us without trying to wheedle out, you know, all the sordid details. Just someone who is genuinely interested in getting to know you as a human being and it can be done quite quickly. 
And, you know, I've got lots of examples of where I've found this to work in my own practice and when I've been on the receiving on end of it. But what I found was um, when I first started teaching and, and I, um, I was an NQT in a single person department, that was a great combination. Fortunately, the humanities department was great, but they weren't specialists, but they were good in helping me <laughs> deal with some of the issues that came up. I can remember um, I had a very unsatisfactory carousel at one point where um, the students were on a um, it's either three or four week carousel at key stage four and really tricky getting to know uh, how to get things moving quickly when you've only got that amount of time and then the, before the next lot will build in. And a lot of them were great, but there were always a handful of um smart Alex, um, you know, we're going to try it on. And so you could kind of see that. But what I found was when I'd set the class up to work on something, I would just go and have a quiet chat with those and just say, you know, how's life going for you? What are you hoping to get out of school? What are you hoping to get out of this, these four weeks that you're with me before you see me again another, I don't know, six months or so. And they, they all just came to heal. I didn't do it to bring them into line in a behavior management thing. I was just trying to find out what I've been going on that was wrong that I could then remedy. I didn't need to remedy anything because I had acknowledged them as human beings. So I kind of stumbled on this by mistake. Um, but I know that I do my best work and I respond best when people take a genuine interest in me as a human being and not just as someone who can do something for them. And so it's that moving from a uh, transactional way of relationships to a truly honest um, deeper level and it doesn't need to take long it doesn't need to take long um, and so I've sort of refined that over the years um, and I've worked hard to refine it um, and I do believe it can be done quickly and I'm not saying I always got this right when I was um, doing school improvement work or inspection work but you know just to ask people what they feel is already going well before you then move on to some more robust conversations it just sort of eases people into knowing that, that we don't they don't want to be caught out I don't want to be caught out so I think it is absolutely fundamental whether we're talking with our peers and our colleagues or when we're talking with with young people absolutely couldn't agree more so moving into the next section now again I mentioned the quotes previously but this one has been an absolute game changer for me so I've seen quite a few quotes from Einstein over the years but I haven't seen this one and uh if, if I share a, another story with you, so um, the behaviour manager at our school that I'm working quite closely with, we are now going to have this. I know, I know that uh, I think you've said previously, live it, don't laminate it. But we are going to have this one laminated um, in, in the behaviour units that we've got in terms of our practice. So everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. I just thought that was just perfect. So... Um, <laughs> especially when you're trying to refine and, and, um, and organize and, and disseminate behavior policies and making everything as simple and as workable as possible, particularly under current conditions. But uh, how do leaders then go about creating those conditions that you talked about for high challenge and low threat and focus on fewer things in greater depth? Well, that's <laughs> that a big question. I'm going to try and ed edit it down. Um, so, you know, if you're in a position of leadership, I had a great quote the other day, which said, uh, you know, it, this wasn't talking about education. It was about talking about an observation on leadership generally is that there are a lot of people who regard leadership as a privilege and as a badge, as opposed to it being one of uh, servanthood. 
you know, so if you're if you're a leader, it's your job to look out for, for people you're working with, not in a soppy way, but actually to make sure they're in conditions where they can thrive. So this notion of um, you know just as simple as possible um, is really important. So I, I I I think it's useful to look at um, wider um, examples than education for this. So um, <clears throat> because I I think there's lots to be learned from beyond the educational sector when we're thinking of this kind of management and leadership theory. So um, I love um, the Timpson mantra, their, lead, their, their management and leadership mantra. And, and you know, Timpson's the sure repairers, the dry cleaners and the key cutters and that sort of stuff. Now, they've got a long standing tradition of employing um, people who've been in prison uh, with a very high success rate, uh, very low recidivism. Now, they keep their principles incredibly simple and it can be summed up as put the money in the till. It's simple. Everything else follows from that. Make sure the money goes in the till. So if you're saying all the money goes in the till, it means you don't need thousands of don't do this and don't do that or make sure you do that. It's really simple. Um, when I'm talking to, um, I'm going to say my son, I don't think he'll listen to this, but I, you know, he's a, um, a running part of a business a family business. And I just say to him every now and then, you know, you can have all this stuff, you can have all these ideas. Just remember, don't be a dick. You know, if you remember not to be dicks, then an awful lot falls into place. So, um, so there's lots of things behind that. And one of the things is, is that people don't come into work to try and do a rubbish job. They come into work, for the most part, wanting to do reasonable stuff. So if you assume they want to do reasonable stuff, don't overload them with non-negotiables. The only non-negotiable, frankly, should be to um, about safeguarding and be in the classroom when you're meant to be, as long as you have got a reasonable timetable and you're not delayed by, you know, having to get to a port cabin 10 minutes away. But, you know, so it's just assume people want to do the best. Um, keep those rules um, which collectively need to be agreed. So um, I don't think anything should be absolutely decreed from leaders without them being negotiated, discussed, thrashed out with the people who've got to apply them. And um, uh, Sir John Harvey Jones was very good on this. Um, you're probably too young to remember, but he had a great series where he, he was the chairman of ICI. And then he had a great series on uh, the BBC where he would go in um, to family companies and um, help them to get better. So sometimes his honest appraisal, which was always done with great warmth, great wit, but, you know, never sugarcoated, was received appreciatively. And quite often it wasn't. Um, but um, he, when he writes about his time at ICI, he was said they never, a huge organisation, they never, ever put anything in stone until it had been thrashed out with the people who were going to have to implement it. So that starts simplifying things. And so it's this simple but also complex way of running through our new ways of working. If you want to put anything in place, just make sure that the teaching assistants, that the uh, teachers actually can see how this is going to work.
Definitely. Was this show Troubleshooter, by the way, Mary? Yes, it was. Yes. Oh, yes, I, I remember it well. I remember it well. So this, <laughs> this, 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 this wasn't that. I'd say it wasn't that long ago. I'm trying to think when it would have been. I mean, probably, probably, probably it, late 80s, early 90s, something like that. Yeah, probably, probably. Oh, I, no, I, I remember. remember. Those, I remember those days yeah. well. Most of the people listening weren't even born then, I don't think. But anyway, it's, it's a great series, and he's a great thinker. Lovely man. Yeah, absolutely. He's dead now, but anyway. Mm. Okay, so another um, another zinger. So we're getting quite a few here, aren't we? So we've had uh, the cut the crap and don't be a dick so far, which are, are two really good mantras to live by. And one I liked in the next chapter is done is better than perfect, um, which is certainly something that's a bit of a mantra on this podcast when um, I get complaints about one of my jingles being too loud and I just have to say, you know, I am a deputy head in a school, not a sound engineer at Abbey Road. Um <laughs> So what what does this mean for schools rather than podcasts? So um I, I, I think this we can get bogged down in this in terms of um uh just keep fiddling around with something which is good enough. So I don't talk here about making sure that spell check has taken place on you know a document that we're sending out from the school or within the school, you know, that's kind of basic stuff. But um, if we try to get everything tickety-boo, we're just going to waste time. And actually, from a philosophical point of view, perfectionism, yeah, perfectionism in this world does not exist. Um, uh, You can only kind of reach to it through some kind of uh, platonic idealism but you know imagine it but nothing in this world is completely round or completely true and so we need to sort of step away from thinking I've just got to keep fiddling with something before I say that it is done so I'm not arguing here for sloppy work I'm arguing here for good intense purposeful work but then just ship it and so the, one of the things I quite find quite helpful is to say, like, the really important stuff I find gets done and the rest of it falls into place. But if I if, if we're trying to get everything so that it is um, to too high standards, I think that we both wear ourselves out and actually it doesn't have huge impact. Um because if we if we take the mantra, you know, done is better than perfect, ship something out that is done. So, you know, whether it's a lesson or whether it is um, pulling together a resource and then we fine tune it as we go through. But if we're not careful, we hold ourselves back by thinking everything has got to be I've got to know it's going to work perfectly before I then go and do it. Just kind of have a go, because mostly nobody dies if it doesn't quite work. And actually ends up as a better product if it's if it's um, refined over time. Yes, completely. And uh, that's certainly the case with the editing on this podcast, which uh, started as a propped up phone next to a loudspeaker on the, and now is uh, into something resembling some kind of technology. So, yeah, I, I absolutely echo that. And I think, again, you know, not to dwell too much on the current situation, but. You know, that is certainly the case with some of the more routine tasks. Again, you know, with the caveats that you talked about with the safeguarding and the safety. But some of the things that we need to do at the moment. Yeah. Done is better than perfect. Let's get these things done. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right, another bit I loved here, Mary. So I've picked out a section that, again, you know, people will be picking out all sorts of things from this book in terms of what chimes with them. But this this chimes with, with me at the moment in terms of um, photocopying. So we've just installed a new system where um, teachers can use their own photocopiers uh, handily available on the corridor for them. So this is this is an interesting quote. So a judicious, hard-nosed look at what we photocopy in schools uh, and an analogy with a fast food diet is definitely one of the highlights of the book for me. So could you share uh, this analogy with the listeners? Right. <laughs> so photocopying is one of my beefs, both, both at a superficial level and at a deeper level. Um, so, um, I mean, at a superficial level, but it is also serious, is that I've yet to come across a school that spends less than 5,000 quid a year on photocopying. Uh, and that's before you get to the Pritsticks. So this is a lot of a lot of money. And we've got to ask what benefit, what, what's it adding to children's learning? So I'm not anti-photocopying. Uh, Completely. I'm not I'm not a complete Stasi on that, but I think we've just got to say, um, is this real quality, this photocopying? I'm going to get to my kids. So the caveat I've got is where schools have worked up um, uh, thoughtful booklets that are going to take children through a sequence of learning or um, someone like Richard Kennett, um, senior leader and a brilliant historian who um, photocopies extracts of history uh, texts uh, for children to annotate and, and respond to, to questions. Um, so th those are that's high quality stuff. But <clears throat> my concern is beyond the amount of money that's spent. Oh, and before I finish that, <laughs> primary schools in particular, you know, big, big banners. We're an eco school. You go and look at their books. It's paper stuck on paper. It's like, what's that about? Why are we sticking paper onto paper? You know, we've got to start asking ourselves some questions. This isn't about saving the planet. This is just about coming to our senses, I think. But my bigger concern about photocopying is that an awful lot, an awful lot of it, and I'm not talking everywhere, but an awful lot across the sector is stuff that's been downloaded off the internet. And a lot of what comes off the internet is downloaded from various sites is not good enough quality so this notion of it being fast food it's uh, i found something oh i'll give that to my ch my children can do that tomorrow well for one thing i think we've got to stop using the word do we're doing the romans in primary we're doing magna carta it's like no, we're learning about it. We're not doing it. Or we're doing Hinduism or Judaism. Poor Hindus, poor Jewish community. We don't do them. We learn about them. So that's a problem that's linked to photocopying and downloading resources that we're going to do this. Now, what we're going to learn from it. And so my argument is, and I'm very happy for people to challenge me on this, but I'm afraid I've seen too much of it, is what get down, gets downloaded and photocopied is not good enough. It's the fast food diet of activity as opposed to thinking and learning so that's my biggest beef about it beyond the money <laughs> oh, absolutely right um and the next section mary i wanted to have a quick look at if that's okay is something that i found invaluable in, in the last book as well and from a, from a senior leader's point of view so section six 
on the source materials for subjects and the leadership support for subject development are absolutely brilliant and invaluable for, for senior leaders to get up to speed with the different areas. So, for example, you know, tonight sat in a curriculum leaders meeting, you know, this this kind of detail and the amount of you know, knowledge you put into this and work you put into this are invaluable across these. So it's not just if you are a teacher of that subject, then you'll benefit from section six. I think, you know, anyone who's in a leadership position or, you know, anyone who's looking to work across the school, governors, for example, would find these absolutely vital readings. So just talk us a little bit about the source material for subjects and, and how important you think they are. Well, that's really um, interesting and very kind of you to say, because I tell you, um, this is I did this for the curriculum book as well, and I've just sort of um, taken it slightly a stage further for this book. And I nearly didn't do it um, for the curriculum book. I realised how um, helpful people found it after it, so I knew I wasn't going to leave it out of this. So there's two reasons why. Um, the reason I didn't do it the first time is that oh my god, that's going to be a sweat. Um, so I know quite a lot about quite a few subjects. Headlines I know quite a lot about. But I don't know much about DT and not much about music, particularly in, in primary. And I, so I just had to tie my leg to the chair, to quote Sue Cowley. She says, when you just got to get something, tie your leg to the chair. And I just put my head down and I did my research to summarise it. But what I found both from the curriculum book and you've just identified from this as well, where it's the similar kind of thinking, is that um, colleagues do find it helpful. So in my head, I was thinking... The, my audience was primary colleagues who might have to beef up on a subject which they they've been told they were going to lead because they were late to the that the, the staff meeting that day usually re i can say that as an re person re is normally the the least popular to be divvied out in a in a primary school um and so just to give them a bit of purchase on where they could go for resources etc but um, what I've now realised, and you've kind of affirmed that, um, a, a senior leader in a secondary school who is line managing subjects that are not their first discipline, um, this is kind of setting up the language and the scope and the headlines to be able to do a bit of prep of what that subject is about. Um, I hadn't realised that when I when I pulled them together. I just realised that it was probably a useful addition and particularly for primary. Um, so that's one reason why they're there. The second reason why they're there is because um, what I'm arguing is, is uh, as a big thread of the book, is that if we are going to up the quality of what we offer our children so that we can get to these deep spaces and places of the individual subjects, we've got to go back to the source material. And so, for instance, if I'm teaching about um, ancient Greece in history or in English, um, say the Greek myths in English, and I'm teaching about the myth of Demeter and Persephone, why wouldn't I show my classes the images from the British Museum of the artefacts from the ancient world, from the time of Demeter and Persephone? Fabulous artefacts, wonderful artwork. It's all available there at no cost, and it's been pulled together with resources, drawn together by the experts, the authorities in the field, the academics working alongside teachers. So I've got some confidence that that is going to be good quality in the same way that I do not have confidence if it has been downloaded from a dodgy website 
with incorrect information on it. Some of it in RE is actually insulting to the faith communities. And I just think we've got to up our game for this and go back to the source material. The final thing I would say in relation to this is um, to quote uh, part of the implementation section of the quality of education, um, where it says that um, it says that teachers should have good subject knowledge. And where they don't have good subject knowledge, which frankly, beyond English and maths in primary is likely to be most of the other subjects, it, plenty of us in secondary as well, working out of our first disciplines, it then goes on to say, leaders have put in place appropriate support. To me, that is a huge lever for getting back on track. What are leaders doing to create the time for colleagues to go back to the original sources, their original source material in every part of the curriculum. And I'm arguing that that's where we get the quality from. So that's the rationale really for that last section of the book. Yeah, like I said, and also um, another of my um, positions at the moment is to be a, a governor on a primary school. And I just think that this is invaluable for, for governors and governing bodies who, you know, may work with edu in education, but may, you know, may, may not. And also to get a handle on what kind of things are going on in school, not not just the section around, you know, the curriculum at the end, but all the book. I think it'd be really, really valuable for, for colleagues on governing bodies to read. Oh, thank you. <laughs> OK, so to finish uh, and to quote Claire Seeley, who was a recent guest on the podcast, her introduction to Back on Track. So how do listeners stop trying to look good or please some external others? And how can listeners focus their efforts on actions that are rooted in their moral purpose? So Claire is such a great writer and I was just screaming with laughter when I saw her forward. I mean, some of it is just so funny. She talks about the I Spy of uh, Book of Educational Improvement. And, you know, this 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 notion of um, quick fixes, tick boxes, pleasing an external audience. And so um, I think the simplest thing to say there is. Who is my main audience? To whom do I have the greatest obligation? And for my money, it is the children in the class in front of me. So we can strip out a lot of this kind of parallel universe of having to provide evidence that I have taught something by saying I'm only interested in what I do with my kids and what they produce. I should not have to, in primary, take photographs of what children have done because they haven't written anything in their books to prove to someone else that that has happened. If the children need it, that's fine. But the children will know that that has happened. I'm not going to mark for an external audience. Most marking we know from all the evidence is a complete and utter waste of time. So that's for the high chop. Most of it. But we're very intentional about what we mark. But we need live feedback in the classroom because we know that has the greatest difference. So we've got to kind of strip out what we're doing for other people and only focus on the children because we get it right for them. The rest follows. And so, um, you know, I, I always quote um, Austin's butterfly here. You know, the, 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 the six stages this child goes through to get a decent uh, rendition of a swallowtail butterfly. And it's often used as um, 
formative assessment, peer assessment, etc. But if you if you if you look at where the child started and where they finished off, it's quite clear the child has made progress. The child be able to talk about the kind of uh, journey they'd been on. The teacher would be able to make some observation about whether they'd made any progress. It had made any difference. Anyone coming into that lesson or, or, or to look at Austin's work, including line managers or Ofsted inspectors, ought to be able to make a judgment about whether that child had made progress or not. If they can't, they shouldn't be doing the job. And so the, the evidence is kind of in what children produce. And a lot of the structures around that to try to capture that actually get in the way. So I think one of the helpful things here is to focus on um, products, which is what um, uh, was the, you know, the original discussion around um, the revision of the national curriculum. So Tim Oates' work on, you know, how do we know whether children got something? It's through what they produce, <laughs> whether that's the spoken word, whether it's something written or whether it's an artifact. And uh, funnily enough, that's what the um, latest framework is saying. So the audience, if we focus on the audience of the children in front of us, the rest kind of sorts itself out, which isn't to say there aren't issues around how you capture light touch evidence of what's happened so that you can then let governors and trustees know. But um, uh, just to, to uh, signal that it's something I'm working on. And I can tell you that it's going to be light touch, but also robust. Um, and also, of course, work like crazy um, Daisy Christodoulou's work and, and people like that. It's possible to get a real purchase on quality of standards without trying to please an external audience because it'll be evident in the work itself. Definitely. So just to finish off, Mary, if you could just tell listeners where the book is available and, uh, you know, in these difficult times, what are you doing in terms of publicity for the book? Uh, whether you're doing anything, you know, in person or virtually and where can listeners find out more about you and your work? <laughs> so um, John Gatner Marvellous and, and Alex Sharrett, uh, shout out to him. Wonderful publisher. Just lets you crack on. Turn stuff around in about 24 hours. It's just brilliant. So it's available on John Cat. Also on the Amazoni. Um, and um, so that's where it is available. And um, some people are beginning to say some nice things about it, which is lovely because, you know, you're writing in the dark, really. It's very lonely. And uh, you just kind of do it because you need to get it out. But when it feels so banal and trite when you're writing it, and then when people say some nice things about it, that is lovely. Um, Events, I'm not doing any events because the book speaks for itself. Um, but what I've found in the past is that people um, ask you to come and talk about what you've written, which I always find quite surprising because I always just think, well, can't you read the book? Anyway, so quite a lot of um, conferences and training come on the back of that. So there's always quite a bit of demand uh, for that sort of work. And so what I've put in place as a result of that demand, I've got, um, I've got an online uh, session I think it's on the 11th of November anyway there's more details on that uh, on my website which is marymart.com but um, anyway it's just just great to be able to share stuff with you and the wider community so um, thank you very much. No it's an absolute pleasure and just to, uh, equally from us a shout out to Alex who is the consummate professional at John Cat in terms of making sure that uh, you know all, all my various demands for books etc he has them within within the day the normally here so thank you alex 
Yeah, just, he and his team are just amazing. Yeah, oh, so I, I echo that. Mm. And just to finish off, Mary, so after a really, really busy day, as I've mentioned a few times, you know, in terms of uh, school leadership at the moment, I just wanted to finish with this. So I came out of work feeling absolutely shattered tonight, but I'm now feeling energised and ready to go. And I just thought that this quote from John Thompson, who's somebody that I hugely respect as well, just really, really echoes with my experience from speaking to you last time and again speaking to you tonight. So this is from one of the uh, recommendations for the book at the start of uh, Back on Track. So John Tomsett, who uh, listeners will know, a previous guest head teacher at Huntington School in York, says that spending time with Mary Myatt is an unadulterated joy. When you read Back on Track, it's like the pair of you are having dinner together in a first class train carriage while chatting about education. This book is an essential read for anyone remotely interested in getting our education system back on track. And I can 100% agree with that tonight. So thank you again for your time, Mary. Really, really appreciate it. And great to speak to you again. Oh, great joy to talk with you again. So thanks so much for inviting me, Phil. Nailers, Netter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section. Learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers, Netter, just talking to teachers. Hi, I'm Bethan from TDT and today I'll be talking to one of our newest TDT associates, Tom Manthorpe. Um, following the recent completion of cohort four of our associate qualification in CPD leadership, we're really excited to hear a bit about your experience, Tom. Um, so can you first of all explain why you chose to apply for this qualification in CPD leadership? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was uh, about two years ago appointed to the role of school leader teaching at our school. And part of my role is therefore looking at the quality of CPD, planning all of our CPD and making sure that it follows best practice advice. And in conversation with our head teacher, uh, having been associated with the TDT for about uh, five or six years now, um, she felt that actually this would be a really good opportunity. And then when we looked in detail at what the course covered, it for me seemed to be an obvious fit in terms of, of helping me to prepare for a role that I was very new to and actually areas I didn't have experience in. And the, the idea of having a research grounding to, to back my decisions and to inform my choices and also to work with uh, TDT members of staff who had visited our school before, we knew we were getting quality as well. So from our point of view, it seemed like a no-brainer in terms of of meeting the needs of our school but also meeting my professional development needs as well and helping me to fulfill my job description. Yeah brilliant and was there any key learning that you took from this course? Yeah absolutely I think the the key learning points for me um, both when planning my whole school CPD was was thinking about making sure there's a rhythm and and that we go through iterations and repetition of, of key learning and that actually we plan to meet the needs of our staff as much as therefore meeting the needs of our pupils as well through that professional development. And then I think the other thing that really struck me was also the, the structure of individual CPD sessions and, and starting off in terms of giving our staff the opportunity to already talk about what they do and then begin to challenge their thinking, moving then to applying whatever we've just covered. And I think those kind of things have really strengthened our CPD provision, but also helped me to feel confident in, in what I'm doing. And I think as I've come into planning this year's round of CPD, I feel much more confident to know I've almost 
worked through a research-based checklist and have therefore made sure that what I'm doing is, is really high standards. And I mean, that was then borne out through our audit process as well. Yes, which was very, very positively received from um, my colleague, Maria Cunningham. Uh, so it sounds like um, you enjoyed engaging with the research and looking at that technical aspect of things, but it has equally supported your work in school. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the nature of the portfolio has meant that everything is applied to my school context and my role. So starting off with the literature review was really useful straight away in terms of getting me to think about what I'm doing and, and why that's useful. And again, applying it to my context, then moving to do the school visits in another context was really useful just to see how other people do things and to understand where they might have an idea that I could steal. And then starting to think about my own transformation plan was by far the, the most useful part of it because I had to actually begin to think about where are my gaps in terms of provision and think about how will I close them, not just in a year either, but also that long-term planning and thinking about how things might shift and change. And obviously my transformation plan has had to shift and change in light of current situation. And I think the other thing I found really useful within that process was the feedback from both yourself and David in terms of what to do and, and also how to manage the change, which was one of the kind of pieces of feedback you guys gave me when I submitted my first draft was actually thinking about change management. And the input there was also really useful for me as well. Brilliant. So I guess final question, um, if there are listeners who are either currently responsible for professional development in their context or they're thinking about that as a, um, as a possible next career move, what would you say to those listeners? Um, I would say absolutely take up a place on the TDT Associate Programme. Um, uh, I've already said this to basically anyone that will listen to me, uh, is that this is some of the best CPD I've ever had because it is so much tailored to my role and, and tailored to that, that kind of CPD leadership role. And I think also if you're already working with the TDT with an audit process, they work so well together as a combination in terms of helping you to understand what the audit's looking at, but also helping you to rationalise the decisions you've made. But I'd go back to what I said at the very beginning, as someone that didn't feel confident in their role, I now feel that I've got a grounding and a, and a pedagogical background that enables me to defend my decisions and justify the decisions, not only to my line managers, but also to our colleagues and to other stakeholders involved in the school. And I think that confidence I've now gained through the programme has been really beneficial to me and to our wider staff as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us today and for sharing the details of your experience. Um, cohort six is starting currently. We have people enrolled on our um, newly changed online learning platform so that it's a lot more appropriate for the current situation. And there are the final few places available. And mainly we are looking for um, applicants for our cohort seven starting in early 2021 so if you are interested listeners you can find out more about the course and our and, and our wider services online at tdtrust.org just talking to teachers talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at pna 1977 on twitter Nimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers.